Judges chapter number 17, and uh, we're going to read the entire chapter. It's not very long, uh, but there's a phrase found in this chapter that is of great interest to me, and I want to point it out to you this morning. The Word of God says in Judges chapter 17, verse number 1, And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said unto his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from thee, about which thou cursest, and spakest also of also in mine ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. And when he had restored the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord from my hand for my son, to make a graven image and a molten image. Now, therefore, I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to the founder who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had an house of gods and made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem, Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim, to the house of Micah, as he journeyed. Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place." And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest, and I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals. So the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now I know, now know I that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. I want you to look back in verse number 6. Let's read it once more and then we'll pray. Word of God says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you bless this service this morning, that you bless your word. Lord, I ask that you give me this morning freedom and liberty in the preaching. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have direct... Uh, orchestration and guidance over the things that I say, and the things that I do, Lord, that I'd not say anything you wouldn't have me to say. But, Lord, I'd not refrain from preaching that which you have for us. Pray that you give us power this morning, Lord, not our power but yours, and not for our glory, but for your glory, that you'd speak to hearts in a way that would bring you glory. Lord, we ask that you'd accomplish in each heart, Father, that which is most needful for us to draw closer to you. Lord, that when we leave here, we'll have been able to say that we've met with you and that we've done business with you, that you've gained ground in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse number 6 has a very interesting phrase used in it. In fact, you'll find this phrase contained only in the book of Judges, but it's contained four times in the book of Judges. The Bible says in verse number 6 that in those days there was no king in Israel. That's an interesting thought to me this morning. Uh, The book of Judges presents to us a period of time in the nation of Israel that was marked by rebellion. 
If you read through the book of Judges, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see them getting closer to God uh, through trials and suffering, and then you're going to see them drifting farther from God in the midst of comfort and security. They'd get in a bind. They would fall under subjection to some group of people. They'd cry out to the Lord. Uh, the Lord would send them a judge or a deliverer that would come and deliver them from the hands of these pagan nations. Uh, they'd be getting in good shape again. They'd be feeling good again. Everything would be going smooth, and they'd begin to drift away from the Lord. Well, 13 times recorded for us, the Lord does this in the life of the nation of Israel. But the last few chapters, uh, chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, occupy an unusual time uh, in this period of the judges. Because God stopped raising up judges, to our understanding, uh, all the way in, uh, at the end of chapter 16, until you get to the book of 1 Samuel, when Samuel is raised up as a judge, it seems as though there was no authority, no boundaries, no law within the nation of Israel. And as you to really understand these chapters, you have to see them as being a commentary on the collective condition of the nation of Israel. I'm going to admit something to you this morning. I don't think you'll be shocked by it. But this portion of Scripture has always puzzled me. Because as you read the book of Judges, we have this, this portrait, this collaborative picture of what's going on in the nation of Israel. Then you get to chapter 17 and all of a sudden you're just talking about a fellow named Micah. How unusual that God seems to draw the attention upon one particular individual. But as you read these chapters, and I'm not going to read all of them to you this morning. I am going to read a portion of each of them, but not all of them. You'll find that what God's really doing is painting a portrait for us of what it means when a person has no acknowledged authority within their life. Can I read to you Matthew chapter number 6, verse 24? You've read it many times, but let me just read it to you. I want you to hear what God says about this matter. Christ speaking said this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Do you understand that in your life, the book of Romans chapter 14 says that no man liveth unto himself and no man dieth unto himself. I don't care who you are this morning, you have something that's running your life. Every single one of us has something that we bow the knee to. Now, we know for a Christian who that ought to be. The book of Colossians is very explicit in the first chapter. It talks about all the things that God has done through His blessed Son, Jesus Christ. And it says this, that in all things He might have the preeminence. You've heard it said this way, and I believe this is accurate. I don't believe it's biologically accurate, but I believe it's theologically accurate, that we all have a throne room in our hearts. Something sits upon that throne in our lives. There's something that is running us, something that is ruling us, something that is dictating to us what we do day in and day out. Well, for all of these years, the nation of Israel, they had been without a king, but God gave them judges. For all of these years, they had spent uh, so uh, 40 years under the leadership of Moses. Moses dies. They spend uh, more years under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua dies, and God begins as they are in the land. They're not traveling anymore. They're where God intends for them to be geographically. God raises men up that they might be a leader to them. But then all of a sudden... After rebellion, after rebellion, after rebellion, they enter a period of time where there's no one anymore that's guiding and directing them. 
Can I draw a parallel to you before I preach this morning? I see in the book of Judges chapter 17, not necessarily in Micah, but in the nation of Israel, I see a picture of the backslidden child of God. I can't tell you how many... You know, there's nothing we hate in this world more than authority. We're born rebels. We are born revolutionaries. We hate the notion of authority in our life. We, we get awful upset at young people. And I've told this a hundred times, but I'm going to tell it again. We get so upset at young people because how rebellious they are. I was a teenager once. Anybody in here a teenager once? One, two. <laughs> Maybe at one time, right, Linda? As a te- you know, we do a lot of preaching against re- uh, on rebellion to young people. We talk to young people all the time about rebellion, rebellion. That rebellious spirit that's out of hell. I've heard preachers say it a thousand times. I've heard them preach uh, out of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And covetousness is the sin of idolatry. I've heard it a hundred thousand times if I've heard it once. But it's pretty rare you ever hear a preacher get up and preach on rebellion in the life of adults. You don't think adults can be rebellious? You don't think they can be rebellious? Look sometime when, when, a, when a police officer has one of them pulled over, writing them out one of those uh, little thank you notes that he writes them. And look at the look on their face. Oh, yes. There's rebellion in the heart of an adult, just like there is in the heart of a child. But it manifests itself in a different way. Most of the time, now this is just the truth, you know why it's so hard on young people? You ever put yourself in the shoes of a young... I'm preaching for our young people this morning, amen? Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on their side. You, you ever... Imagine what it'd be like. It's been a few years since most of us have been in school. What would it be like if you're sitting there talking to somebody and somebody turned and looked at you and said, Shh! You remember what it was like in school, don't you? You'd be sitting there talking. Somebody turned around and they'd go, Shh! If that happened to you today, you'd say, Shh! Yourself! That's what you'd say. We don't have as many people intruding into our lives today as we did when we were young people. But, buddy, you mark her down. When someone starts to, we get upset in a hurry. We don't like authority. No one likes authority. Authority is the greatest offense to the flesh, and we hate it. The Bible says there came a time in the nation of Israel where they managed to get rid of all authority. I see Christians who in their life, I hear it all the time. How many times have you heard someone say, nobody's going to tell me what to do? I've got news for you, friend. There's a God in heaven who has every right to tell you what to do. You say, well, that's not my kind of God. Then you don't know the true God. Because He's not only your Father, but He's your Creator. You're His property. And He has every right to tell you what to do. In the nation of Israel, we find a time when they purposed they were going to serve nobody but themselves. And let's take a few moments this morning and examine some of the things. There's three things that we see in their lives. And we're going to read a few, a few portions of Scripture. So you hang with me. But I want you to see that the first thing that takes place in the life of an individual who does not have Jesus for their king. The first thing that happens in the life of an individual that purposes that they are going to run their own life, the first thing that we see is idolatry. Now, when we talk about idolatry, some of us kind of get mixed ideas. When we think of idolatry, we sort of try to fixate that sin into the cultural context of Bible times. 
And certainly in some ways that is appropriate. Uh, But today it doesn't seem to be very relevant if we think of it in that context because I don't know very many people that have little idols. I mean, Roman Catholics have crucifixes. That's about as close as you're going to find it in Christendom. Typically people don't have idols that they bow down to or pray to. I've never been in most of your houses. I don't know. You may have a room like Micah had that was a house of your God. You may have a closet tucked back somewhere where you've got all your pagan idols set up. But if I just had to guess, just just an educated guess, I'd say that most of us probably don't have anything like that. And yet we find that biblical idolatry is more rampant today than it has ever been in human history. Because idolatry is not... It is not defined as a little idol that someone necessarily bows down to. But biblical idolatry, and I want you to get this, is defined as anything that takes the, the supreme place of Jesus Christ in our heart, our affections, our life, and our actions. And here's what I see in the church today. I, I don't see very many people bowing down to a, to a gold or a silver or a wooden or a stone idol, but I see lots of people bowing the knee to certain pressures in their life that keep them from a close relationship with Jesus Christ. I see people bowing the knee to a paycheck week after week. Hey, listen now, we all got to have money. I don't care who you are. I mean, we all got to have money. But you better not let that money run you. And you better not let that money become a stumbling block in between you and Jesus Christ. I've heard people, probably the most misquoted portion of Scripture in the entire world is that money is the root of all evil. That's not what your Bible says. Your Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. If that was the case, we could go out and burn anything of value and we'd get rid of the root of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of evil. And I see people bowing the knee to a paycheck. I see them bowing the knee to their job, not necessarily because of the paycheck, but because of ambition. The preacher preached on it Sunday night, and I say amen to what he said. One of the things that's a stumbling block to young people is jobs. And you may say, I didn't think anybody had any jobs. Well, nobody has a job that's worth anything anymore. But you see young people all the time go out and get one of these piddly jobs at a grocery store. Go out, go out and get a piddly job at the mall. And all of a sudden, they're MIA from the house of God for eight seventy-five an hour, whatever it is now. Let me tell you something. That minimum wage is not worth your Christian testimony and your Christian Walk with us. It's not worth it. We see all kinds of things. I see some people bowing the knee to a boat, bowing the knee to a camper, bowing the knee uh, to, uh, to a getaway, bowing the knee, sometimes bowing the knee to their kids, bowing the knee to their grandkids. There's idols everywhere if you'll just open your eyes. And we see in the life of this one man, Micah, who in many ways, and if you were to read chapter 18, you'd find that his idol eventually got set up and was the main idol that people worshipped for an entire tribe of Israel, it manifests itself first off in idolatry. And you know what the chief idolatry is? What does it say? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You know what the ultimate idol is that men are worshipping today is self. You hear people say it all the time, don't you? Well, I just don't see it that way. I'm getting ready to say something real nice, so pay attention. Nobody cares how you see it. question is, how does God see it? I just don't see it that way. I just have trouble believing God could be that way. God doesn't have to have you believe Him for Him to be God. God is who He is, whether we believe Him or reject Him or accept Him or not. He said, I change not. Your being upset at the way God is doesn't upset God one bit. He's still God. That's the great God this day that we live in itself. You know what Christ was talking about when He said God and mammon? That word mammon deals with anything material. 
It's not just money, but it's anything material and carnal. That which can be sensed, that which can be touched, that which is physical. Could, could I just insert a word uh, there? I mean, I'm not changing the Bible now, but, but can I give you a word that I think sums it up today? Secular humanism. The God of self. We live in a day where secular humanism has infected our churches. So I don't know about that preacher. Let me ask you something. You get and look sometime. What most preachers are preaching about a God, listen now, who is fully occupied with helping me. I'm thankful God can help me, friend. I'm thankful He's a very present help in a time of trouble. But, but can I just say this? God doesn't exist for my benefit. I exist for His benefit. God doesn't exist for my glory. I exist for His glory. And this notion that God is Santa Claus sitting in the sky just waiting to do anything that will benefit us is totally unbiblical in every way, shape, fashion, and form. I don't say that to discourage you from praying and asking things from God. God commands us to pray and ask things from God. I say that to help adjust your perspective this morning because all of modern Christianity seems to think it's all about us. It's not about us, not about you, not about me. It's about Him. It's about Him. That's who it's about. I want you to notice three things about this man's idolatry. This is interesting. You read the story with me, but in case you're asleep, let me just give it to you uh, very quickly. Uh, Micah uh, determines, there's a little bit of a spat between him and his mama. He stole money out of her purse to buy cigarettes, or, or not exactly like that, but he stole money that she had set aside that she was going to give him so that, she, that he could make a graven image to the Lord. Boy, don't that sound like a lot of parents you know? They want a taste of religion, but they don't want their kids to be a religious fanatic. She wanted him to be a little religious, but she didn't want him to be biblical in his religion. She said, I'm going to make you a graven image to the Lord. That was the same sin that the nation of Israel committed in the wilderness when they made the golden calf to keep a feast unto the Lord. And so he says, well, Mama, I'm sorry I stole the money. Here, you can have the money. And she says, no, I want you to have the money. He says, well, I don't want the money. I'm going to let you have the money. And after they fussed and fighted about it a little bit back and forth, he takes, uh, she takes the money and she has a graven image made. And Micah sets it up in the house of his gods. But now here's the problem. He's got to find someone to be his priest. Notice what it says in verse number 5. The Bible says, if I can get my Bible turned the right way, I get preaching and sometimes get my Bible turned the wrong way. The Bible says, And the man Micah had an house of gods and made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. Now, I want to say this. Micah is going to go on to hire a sojourning Levite to be his priest. But listen carefully this morning. Whether that Levite had come along or not, notice Micah's resolve in his idolatry. This was not a sin of opportunity. This was a deliberate, conscious decision on the part of Micah. Micah's sons had no business being a priest. Even in the best of circumstances, even if we were to assume Micah's heart was pure, which it was not, even if we were to assume that he was so ignorant that he thought making a graven image was okay, which he wasn't, at the end of the day, Micah knew and understood that his sons had no business being a priest. Micah's idolatry was designed and defined by his self-will and self-want, not by a sin of opportunity. Can I just share something with you today? When a Christian makes up their mind that they're going to live a lawless Christian life, they're going to do it no matter what. I have people all the time come to me, and, and, and I won't say who, uh, but I might point here in a second. But No, I have people come to me all the time. You know, they, they miss church or they're making a decision in their life and, and they're doing something in their life that they know is wrong. 
And they come to me and they want me as their pastor to validate the things that they've done wrong. They want me to say that it's okay that they've done something wrong. I've learned this in the short time of pastoring. I have an obligation to my Lord and to my Savior to not ever condone sin. But I've also learned this, that never has my opposition stopped them from making their decision. Because here's a simple truth about life. You can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. People make their own decisions. And here's the reality. If you make up your mind that you're going to live for self, you're going to live for self no matter what. Oh, there may be something that comes along and facilitates it, but don't you think for one moment that it was just a moment of weakness and a sin of opportunity. The human heart seeks always to be rebellious against its maker. The flesh always seeks to throw off and cast off the yoke of God's authority. And when we make up our minds that we're going to get out of the will of God, we don't have to have anybody help us. We've made up our minds we're going to get out of the will of God. Before this Levite ever came along, Micah consecrated one of his sons because he said, I want to live this way, I want to do this, and I'm going to do it no matter what anybody thinks. Let me tell you something. You might be able to get the preacher. You might be able to get your, your family, your parents, or your children. You might be able to get your friends. You might be able to get your spouse. You might be able to get your dog to tell you that your sin is okay. But that doesn't make it okay. We think sometimes if we can get enough people to agree with us about what we're doing, that makes it okay. We're going to go on to see that Micah had a whole tribe of Israel that agreed with him he was doing the right thing, and he was still living in sin. Notice, first off, the resolve of his idolatry. Now, I want you to notice a second thing. This interests me. I want you to look at verse number 10. The Bible says this, And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, speaking to the Levite priest, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest. And I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals. So the Levite went in. Now notice what it says in verse 11. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. Now wait a minute. This man, he's a young man, probably the age of Micah's sons. He has hired this Levite to come in and to be his priest. I want you to notice the result of his idolatry. You see, (laughs) Micah thought he was making a God that was going to help him. Am I right? Micah thought he was making a God that was going to help him. Micah thought when he brought this priest in, this priest was going to be a help to him. And yet, what do we find? This priest that comes in, and by the way, this idol in, in chapter 18 nearly cost Micah his life. And when this Levite comes in, we find that he says to him, this is a young man, he says, be unto me a father and a priest. And I'll give thee ten shekels of silver by year. And and, and I'll give you victuals. What do we find? We find that the worshiper has become the slave in this story. Let me read a verse of Scripture that I think may... They give you an idea of what I'm talking about. In Isaiah chapter 46, listen to what verses 6 and 7 says. It's talking about the nation of Israel and their idolatry. And it says this, They, the nation of Israel, lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him. Speaking of the gods, they bear him. The Israelites bear the god. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. 
From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer nor save him out of his trouble. Here's the thing that the Lord showed Isaiah about the nation of Israel. They made these gods so that these gods could carry them out of captivity. But now we see them carrying their gods into captivity. You know what happens when we begin to worship self? Pretty soon we become a slave to self. Oh, I've seen it a hundred times, man. I've seen people that... And, and, and I'm not trying to pick on jobs. I hope everybody here is employed and tithing. Amen. But I, I'm not trying to pick on the workforce. I'm really not. But I've seen time and time people, when they've been out of work and out of a job, they get so close to the Lord. I've seen it. Oh, I've seen a few that get out of work and they get down in the dumps and they're gone. You never see them again. But more often than not, when, when they're out of work, when, when the money's not coming in, when they're having to live by faith, they get close to God and then God answers and gives them a job. And pretty soon, boom, there goes their entire spiritual condition. What's happened? This thing that they thought was going to save them, this thing they thought was going to carry them, all of a sudden now they're having to carry it. And you say, hey, missed you on Sunday. Ah, oh, preacher, I'm sorry I had to work. Let me tell you something. Everybody has to get their ox out of the ditch. I'm just giving you some... Pra- this is some homespun, colloquial, folksy uh, advice, okay? So get ready. I mean, people, pay, people watch Heartland series to get what I'm about to tell you, okay? Everybody has to get their ox out of the ditch. But you've got a problem when your ox lives in the ditch. Everybody has to get their ox out of the ditch from time. It's the nature of oxes to get stuck in the ditch. But when your ox lives in the ditch, it's time to get you a new ox. There's a problem. Every one of us, there's times we're providentially hindered from being in the house of God or serving God or praying like we ought to or reading our Bible. But when there's something in our life that stands as a constant obstacle and we become a slave and a servant to that, it's time to get a new ox. It's time to change what we're doing. We see his result of his idolatry. He became a slave to it. Now, I want you to notice the last verse. Look what it says. Verse number 13. Then said Micah, Now I know that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. We see the rationalization of his idolatry. He says, I know I was wrong before, but I'm sure I'm right now, because I have a Levite to my priest. In other words, he says this, I want to do an unchristian thing in a Christian way and expect God's blessing. You know that sometimes it's not the aesthetics of what we're doing, it's the substance of what we're doing that's wrong. We we were talking this morning about sodomite marriage in Sunday school class. Brother Brandon was asking about it. He's awful interested. I don't know what his... But he had a lot of questions. You pray for him. He was asking me this morning about uh, about... What defines and what makes marriage? And, and, and if the reason that God does not recognize sodomite marriage... By the way, God still does not recognize sodomite marriage. God never will recognize sodomite marriage. And, and, but he asked, is it because it's sin or is it because it does not meet the, the parameters of what a marriage is? I said, well, it's, because it's both, but it's especially because it does not meet the parameters of marriage. Marriage is one man... Marrying one woman, ideally for one lifetime. I know it don't always work out that way, but that's the ideal of it. That's what marriage is. Two men living in sin is not marriage. Two women living in sin is not marriage. A man and a woman living in sin is not marriage. So you can call it that if you want. 
But the reality is you can't do an unchristian thing in a Christian way and think God's going to bless it. And I know lots of people that get out of the will of God and then try to live for God the best they can while they're out of the will of God. God won't bless that. Until you come back to the place where you stepped out of the will of God and make it right, God won't bless you. God won't use you. You may say you're being used. You may say, but I've got a Levite to my priest. I've fixed it. But his idol was still standing. The Levite himself was out of the will of God or he would have never agreed to it. Sin is sin is sin is sin is sin. No matter how we dress it up, no matter what we call it, sin is sin. So we see their idolatry. Now I want you to notice the second thing, and I'm going to try to just hurry through these. I don't know what you all did wrong, but the Lord had me preach on that for a long time. Turn with me to chapter 18, and I want to read just a few verses here. Now I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the, the short, I'm going to give you the, the Reader's Digest version, not the Reader's Digest Bible version, but you know what I mean, uh, of what I'm, of what takes place. Micah continues in his idolatry, continues in his sin. The tribe of Dan, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, and more, more specifically, I believe a family in the tribe of Dan, felt as though they had not inherited as much land as they needed. And so they purpose in their hearts, they're going to go out and they're going to, to fight some nation, destroy some nation, and, and gain some more land. And in doing so, they travel to a place by the name of, of Laish, which is a Gentile city. Uh, it's as close, uh, the closest thing to it is, is Zidon and the Zidonians, but they, it's so far they have no business with them. And on the way, they, they come by the house of Micah. And uh, while they're there at the house of Micah, they find out he's got a priest there. They know the Levite that's there. They look at the Levite. They say, well, what are you doing here? Is he holding you captive? He says, no, he's paying me. I'm his priest. They say, well, that's, that's a pretty rough gig. Wouldn't it be better to be a priest to a whole family uh, of the nation of Israel, a whole tribe, rather than just one man? He says, hey, that sounds good to me. I, I belong to the highest bidder. And so they leave. Micah follows after them and says, hey, you stopped by the house and stole my priest. Amen. And uh, they said, well, you better keep your mouth shut before we kill you. That's the simple synopsis of it. But the, the focus changes from Micah, and now it's upon the tribe of Israel. You see, when there's no king in Israel, it begins with idolatry. But notice the second thing that happens. We see their iniquity. Notice what it says in verse number 27. We're talking about the tribe of Dan. The Bible says, And they took the things which Micah had made, and the priest he had, which he had, and came unto Laish unto a people that were at quiet and secure, and they smote them with the edge of the sword and burnt the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Zidon, and they had no business with any man, and it was in the valley that lieth in Bethrehob, and they built a city and dwelt therein. They called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan their father, who was born unto Israel. Howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, in other words, not a Levite, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. And they set up Micah's graven image, which he made, all the time that the, all the, time that the house of God was in Shiloh. I want you to notice, first off, the example of their iniquity that's pointed out. Now, we could have a lot of debate about whether they were in the right or in the wrong. God had promised them the, the land of Israel. There's no question about it. But of all of the cities that they could have determined to go and to destroy, they go to a place named Laish, which the Bible says had no magistrate, was utterly defenseless, and was too far away from anything for anyone to gain any help. Consider the brutality of their actions. I mean, they were so heartless 
and without compassion in such a way that they chose the easiest target and destroyed them so that they might gain from it. Can I say this, that once we start down the path of idolatry, it's not long before we start committing open sin. Not only open sin, but open sin that hurts others. Oh man, how many mamas and daddies have wept themselves to sleep at night over their prodigal? How many grandmamas and, and granddaddies, or I mean, if you're, that's if you're from, say, if you're from here, it's mammals and papals. Wonder how many of them have wept themselves to sleep at night over a grandchild that they love dearly that's out in the midst of sin. All the while, that grandchild, those tears just fall into the sand. Their cries fall on deaf ears. You mark my word, you start doing the wrong thing and trying to do it in the right way, it won't be long before you'll just be doing the wrong thing in the wrong way. We need to, man, Lord help me with what I'm about to say. We need to get back to the place where we simplify this thing and we take some simple steps. If something is pulling you away from God, that don't need to be in your life. Whatever rationalization, if something is causing sin in your life, if something is, if, is facilitating... You know what Paul said? He said that, uh, that if we walk in the Spirit, we'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And he said, make no provision for the flesh. In other words, don't even let the flesh get a foothold in your day-to-day actions. The problem is we've flirted with sin so long that it's overtook our lives and we're corrupted and we're infected by it. We think if we put a little window dressing on, on, on our backslidden condition that it's going to fix things, and it won't. We see an example of their iniquity. I want you to notice not only an example of it, but I want you to notice, secondly, the extent of their iniquity. What does it say in verse number 30? And the children of Dan set up the graven image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan. Listen to this. Until the day of the captivity of the land. The decisions they made stuck with them until God finally broke them. It's very likely, very likely that when a person gets... Listen, oh my. When a person gets out of the will of God, it is statistically probable that they're going to die in that condition. You don't have to. I'm thankful you don't have to. I'm thankful that you may be wrong, but you can get right. But I've watched people for too long to not know that once people go down that pathway, most of the time they stay down that pathway. I give you too many names of people who's out of church, marriage wreck, kids on their way to hell because of some parents that made some decisions to start worshiping self and to start doing things their way. Notice the extent, but I want you to notice the effect of it. What does it say? In verse 31, it says, All the time, the house of God was in Shiloh. In other words, when they should have been going to the house of God to worship, they were going to the house in Dan, the house of Gershom. And they were worshiping at the wrong place. You know what it caused? You know why people usually stay in that condition? Because let me tell you something. We have a gracious God, and I'm not trying to puff up the church or puff up preachers or pastors too much. I'm not. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. The local church is God's plan. Let me say that again. The local church is God's plan. In the life of His people, that they might be sanctified, that they might live for His glory and for His honor, the local church is God's means for that. So when you get to the place where you won't even go across the hill for the house of God, 
there's not much hope for you. I'm not preaching to the folks that ain't here. Because there is no preaching to the folks that ain't here. I'm preaching to those that are here. So that a year from now, if I say the same thing, I'm not talking about you being the person that's out of the will of God and out of the house of God. There was no hope at this point. Because they were never in a place where they were going to hear the truth. You know, that's what we do. We surround ourselves with people that will lie to us so that we can stay in our own lies. I want you to look with me at chapter 19. I'm just going to touch on it. We see iniquity. We see idolatry. But where does it end? Chapter number 20 presents to us a war between the tribe of Benjamin and the other tribes of the nation of Israel. But I want you to notice the cause for this war. Now, when you get time, read the whole chapter. I'm not going to take the time to do it. The chapter number 19 presents to us the story of a certain Levite. Now, you want my opinion? I believe it was the same Levite. You may not believe that. I believe that. The Bible says that when they got to Laish, that they made... And by the way, that Levite was out of a job, you notice, when they got to Laish. Because uh, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, his family became the priest. I believe that when that happened, he left there. I believe we're talking about the same Levite. I may be wrong. Heaven may change my mind about that. If you want to find me, punch me in the mouth when we get there, good luck. Amen. But uh, I believe it's the same Levite, personally. This Levite has a concubine. His concubine runs off and goes home to her daddy. Man, this ain't my message, but let me just say this. It would help a lot of young marriages. It would help a lot of young marriages if mamas and daddies wouldn't let them run home to them, if they'd make them stay there and solve their problems. The concubine runs off, goes home to her daddy. Levite says, well, I've got to go get her. So he goes and travels to his father-in-law's house and finds his concubine. And when he gets there, <laughs> I think it's funny, when he gets there, the father-in-law's, I mean, he's glad to see him. <laughs> that ought to tell you something. When the Levite gets there, his father-in-law, he said, Whew, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. And so they sit around and they eat, they drink, they, they be merry, what have you, for a day or so. And then it's getting near dark. Levite says, we've got to go. I've got to get home. And so they load up the Levite, his servant, and his concubine, and they begin to travel. Well, they come to a place by the name of Gibeah, which belongs to the children of Benjamin. And look at verse number 22. They, they, an old man sees them. They're, they're going to sleep outside in the street. And an old man is traveling through there and he sees them. And, and he asks them what they're doing. They say, well, we're traveling. We have no place to stay. No man took us in. They said, but we've got food for our animals. We've got food for us. We just need a roof over our head. So the old man says, I'll tell you what, you come home with me. I'll take care of you. I'll put a roof over your head. I'll feed your animals. I'll feed you. Everything seems to be working out. Look what it says, verse 22. Now, as they were making their hearts merry in the home of this old man in the place of Gibeah, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house that we may know him. Listen, I don't want to be ugly this morning. But I'll say this, there's lots of parents, they won't censor a thing that comes across their TV, but they try to censor their King James Bible. These men wanted to have a sodomite relationship and experience with this Levite. You'll remember a time when something similar happened, won't you? In Sodom and Gomorrah, the same thing happened. Only the men in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the men of Sodom, sought to have relationship with the angels that had came. Well, notice what takes place. Verse 23, And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them, 
and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly. Seeing that this man is come into mine house, do not this folly. Behold, here is my daughter, a maiden, and his concubine. Them I will bring out now, and humble ye them, and do with them what seemeth good unto you. But unto this man do not so vile a thing. But the men would not hearken to him. So the man took his concubine and brought her forth unto them. And they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning. And when the day began to spring, they let her go. Then came the woman in the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was till it was light. And her Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. And behold, the woman, his concubine, was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold. And he said unto her, Up! Let us be going. But none answered. Then the man took her up upon an ass, and the man rose up and gat him unto his place. And when he was come into his house, he took a knife and laid hold on his concubine, divided her together with her bones into twelve pieces, and sent her into all the coasts of Israel. And it was so that all that saw it said there was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it, take advice, and speak your minds. What a tragic picture. That's found here. They abuse this poor woman until she dies. She collapses dead on the doorstep of this man's house. And he takes her home and to send a message of what the children of Benjamin had done, he takes and he, he cuts her into 12 pieces. That, that's direct, amen. That's one of those tell me what you really mean moments and sends them to the other tribes of Israel. Now, here's what I want you to notice, though. We see idolatry and we see iniquity. But I want you to notice in this passage the indifference of this Levite. Notice it again with me. Look with me at verse 25. But the men would not hearken to him, so the man is concubine, and brought her forth unto him them. And they knew her and abused her all the night until the morning, and when the day began to spring, they let her go. I want you to notice his consent to sin's exercise. Here they are holed up in this house fearful that they're going to come in and kill them. And the man of the house had said, I'll send my daughter and I'll send your concubine out and they'll spare our lives. And somewhere between then and verse 25, the man says, no, don't send your daughter. I'll send my concubine. And he shoves the young lady out the door and that's the end of her life. Let me tell you something. He was just as guilty as those men when he shoved her out the door. He consented unto what took place. You know, one of the minor prophets said this, that my my priest, the Lord said, commit murder by consent. When you consent to sin, when you allow it to go on, when you can stop it from going on, you're just as guilty as those performing it. And you know what happens when we get out of the will of God? You know what happens when we get out of the will of God? We start making friends that are out of the will of God. We start, we start associating with people that are out of the will of God. And it won't be long before they're doing things that you never thought you'd do. And all that it takes for you to be as guilty as sin is for you to keep your mouth shut while they commit sin. That's what sinners really want. They want a Christian to validate their sin. And listen to me, neighbor, when you're out of the will of God and you're hanging around lost folks and they're sinning and you keep your mouth shut, you're telling them that Christ is okay with their sin because you're a Christian. And if you won't stand up and say something, Christ probably wouldn't either. 
That's what they think. We see him consenting unto sin's exercise. I want you to notice the second thing. Man, this broke my heart. I'm going to be honest with you. This turned my stomach when I thought of this. Look what it says in verse number 26. The Bible says, Then came the woman in the dawning of the day and fell down at the door of the man's house where her Lord was till it was light. Notice his next phrase. It'll be lost on you if you don't notice it on purpose. And her Lord rose up in the morning. You know what that tells me? That tells me that he slept all night. We see him consent unto sin's exercise, but then notice his comfort with sin's existence. If it was somebody you cared about and loved, you wouldn't sleep a wink. Some of you mamas and daddies, you know what it's like. You've stayed up till 3, 4 in the morning wondering where your child was at. This man's concubine is outside. He knows what's taking place. He can hear her screams. He knows what's taking place. And he pillows his head and goes to sleep. It won't be long when you're consenting unto sin. It won't be long till you're comfortable with sin. A.W. Tozer said this, and I'll share this quote very quickly. A.W. Tozer said, Oftentimes we have a falling out. People leave our church. Because they say we've been too narrow and too close-minded. He said, if I make any apology, it is but this, that I'm still not as narrow as the Word of God. You know the problem in this day that we live in? Is that we are so used to sin. Sin does not bother us that it gets to such a state before we ever do or say anything about it that we can't do anything about it. Not a thing. I'm reminded of a woman when Katrina hit. You might have saw her on the news. There was footage of a woman. The helicopters were flying over the the, the flood-ravaged and storm-ravaged cities. And it it zoomed in on this one woman. She was sitting on her front porch with a mop. And it had flooded all the way up to her front porch. And she's sitting on the front porch with a mop, trying to mop out the water. Here's a woman on her front porch trying to mop out the ocean little too late, don't you think? See, they, they is comfortable living on the waterfront. I'm not fussing at people that live in Louisiana. I mean, there's something wrong with you if you can live in that mess, but I, I'm, not, I'm not fussing at I, I, Just as an illustration, you understand. They had lived on the waterfront so long staring at that ocean. They had grown comfortable with it till it creeped up into their house. That's how sin is, friend. You grow comfortable with it. Then notice a third thing, one phrase, really one word that he says. He's grown comfortable with it. Verse number 25 again. Or I'm sorry, not verse 25, verse 27 again. The Bible says, And her Lord rose up in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way. And behold, the woman his concubine was fallen down at the door of the house and her hands were upon the threshold. Now this man does not know that she's dead yet. But I want you to notice what he does. And he said unto her, Up, and let us be going. Up, and let us be going. I know it's easy sometimes to read our Bible and it seems like a distant thing, but place yourself there watching the scene. Look at this man that's supposed to be a priest of God, that's supposed to have a heart of compassion and a heart of tenderness. Look at this woman fallen dead upon the doorstep. 
And he walks out the door and sees her lifeless body laying there. And he looks at her and he says, Up! Let us be going. Get up! It's time to go. I want you to notice finally his callousness towards sin's effect. Didn't even bother him. Didn't even bother him what that poor girl had been through. If he had any love in his heart towards her, he would have fallen on her and hugged her. What can I do for you? But no, he walks out and he says, Up, up, and let us be going. Won't be long you get out of the will of God. Sin won't sin will not only not bother you, but the effects of sin won't bother you. you, you we wonder sometimes, man, how does the drug addict do it? How does the drug addict keep putting a needle in their arm with their teeth falling out, with scabs all over them, with their life in pieces, with an unfed baby weeping and crying in a cold and drafty house? How do they do it? It's because they've been in sin so long that they just don't even care anymore. They don't even care anymore. Just looking for an escape. This man says, up. Let's get going. Up. It's time to go. There's no mourning period. We know nothing of a funeral. In fact, we have no reason to believe that this man shed a single tear over this woman. Let me tell you something. When you get to the place that sin don't break your heart anymore, you've gotten awful far from God. And I don't just mean sin. I mean the effects of it. You know, you know why sin angers me? Because I see what it does. Sometimes people, I mean, people get upset. Sometimes people can't understand why a pastor gets up and, and preaches on being in church so much. Say, so, well, he just wanted to build a church. He just wanted a name. Let me tell you something. If you think it's about building a church or wanting a name, uh, friend, I mean, you're crippled too high for crutches. The reality is this. I've seen too many marriages, too many homes, too many young people wrecked. And I'm tired of it. And I hate sin and I hate the devil and I hate seeing what sin does in the lives of God's people. You wonder why, why preachers preach the way they do? It's because sin wrecks the way it does. Preachers have to preach the way that they do. This thing's too serious. It's too real. Oh, it was just a simple step, wasn't it? Just a simple step. Just making an idol, that's all. It was a house of God's. That's what everyone was doing. But you see, when there's no king in Israel, when there's no king in Israel, and every man does that which is right in his own eyes, you know what happens? The book of Proverbs says, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Your way will always lead to destruction. God's way will always lead to life. You can try to do the wrong thing in the right way. That won't get you anywhere. You've got to be broken. You've got to have your will broken, your way broken. You've got to fall at the feet of an almighty God and say, Lord, I've messed up, but I don't want to stay messed up. I want you to fix me. I want to do right. I want to live right. You know what that is? We've got a real fancy Bible word for that. You know what it is? Repentance. You've got to repent. I know that word makes some people uncomfortable. It's okay. The Word of God always makes people uncomfortable. You've got to repent. Say, you believe in... Oh, yeah, I believe in repentance. I believe in repentance. You've got to repent of it. Ask God to forgive you. 
I'm glad if you're here today and any of these things rung true in your life, I'm glad you don't have to stay in that shape. I'm glad. I'm glad that if sin don't bother you as much as it used to, you can find a place on this altar, you can give your heart to God and let sin bother you again like it ought to. I'm thankful you don't have to stay that way this morning. But for that to happen, you've got to crown Him King. You've got to crown Him King. You've got to take the throne off or the, the crown off of self. And you've got to crown Him King this morning. I wonder if you'd be willing to do that.